let's talk about digital identity, the podcast connecting identity and business. I am your host, Oscar Santolaya. Hi, and thanks for joining today. We always are very interested in learning what are the digital identity initiatives around the world. And today we have a location that is geographically a bit far from where we are in Finland. It's 10 hours ahead. And today we are going to talk about New Zealand. And for that, we have a very special guest who is Andrew Weaver. He is the executive director of Digital Identity New Zealand, an organization whose mission is to create a digital identity ecosystem that enhances privacy, trust, and improves access for all people in New Zealand. Andrew is a strategic specialist with over 30 years hands-on management, consultancy, and system development experience built throughout New Zealand, Australia, Asia, and the Middle East. He's also an active and passionate supporter of social enterprises and charities working in New Zealand and overseas. Hello, Andrew. Kia ora. Kau ramataka ta maonga, kau ta awa kairangi ta awa, no whakatiki ahau. Kau weva toku whanau, kau Andrew toku ingawa. That is just a very brief introduction of me. I've just told you my identity. That's mm -hmm. the Māori language, the indigenous people of New Zealand, and that's a traditional greeting. They've had that for hundreds, if not thousands of years, to describe the place that they call home. So I talked about my mountain, I talked about my river, I talked about the geographic location, then I talked about my family and finally talked about myself. So it's always a good way to start a conversation around identity. Fantastic. Okiaora, Andrew. Definitely, it's very fascinating talking, talking with you. You started in a, in a very special way and we want to hear more about you. Please tell us uh, a bit more about you, how you came to this world of digital identity. Okay, my personal background, and I've been working in payments, cards, banking, fraud prevention for you know, too many years to count. And on a couple of occasions, I'd been asked to facilitate some discussions at a conference, banking conference primarily. And the last time I did that, the topic was digital identity. We had some people across from Canada, Jody Brennan from DIAC, who you're probably familiar with. Yeah, she's been here, yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, so she was over and a number of other people talking about this subject of identity. And so with me facilitating, I needed to do a bit of research and it's like, oh, this is actually, this is a fascinating discipline, a fascinating area. Obviously, there's a strong relationship with banking and with authentication, but that's just the starting point. The potential is so much wider than that. So yeah, after that experience of meeting some of these great people that are working on some complex challenges and looking to move us forward, it's like, yeah, I'd like to be part of that. And the opportunity came up with Digital Identity New Zealand for me to take on a role there. So that's what leads me here. Great. So you came from mostly payment and banking and that, that was called connection to digital identity. And since when you are in Digital Identity New Zealand? We've been going, the organization is very new. So I'm the first executive director. It's a very, very grandiose title, <laughs> but I'm not I'm the first person to hold this role. And we started in November of 2018. So just coming up to two years yes. um, and a month or so. So yeah, I've held the role since it started. Well, excellent. Yeah, I would like to hear for personally from you and from your perspective being there in New Zealand, what do you feel that are the main challenges in digital identity today? And of course, focusing from your perspective there in New Zealand. 
Yeah, when I came into this role, as you typically do, especially from a technology background, you think that it's technology which is the solution. We need to work on the technology in order to make things better. But the strange thing with digital identity is most of the technology that is needed for it to operate effectively is already there. We're not really inventing anything new. The key to digital identity working is actually in collaboration and When you unpack collaboration, the fundamentals of collaboration involve transparency and trust. And that's not just between the end users or the consumers, if you like, of identity systems. It's actually between the participants themselves. So the ability to, you know, receive uh, data from another party and be able to trust that data, trust that it's correct, trust its veracity, trust its origins. So the mechanisms of trust and collaboration are actually the biggest problems that we have to solve rather than pure technology. Trust and collaboration, you mean between organizations and between organization and people? Yeah, yeah, exactly that. So Digital Identity New Zealand itself is a, it's a not-for-profit association of member organizations. Basically, it's a group of stakeholders who have chosen to work together and collaborate. So we're not government, we're not funded, certainly not directly by government. So we're an independent organization and our members make up these technology providers and developers from the big nationals right through to startups, people who are working on new or innovative solutions. We have a large sort of retail organizations from all of the major banks in New Zealand, Air New Zealand, the, the national airline, and some others with a very large footprint in terms of, well, large in New Zealand terms, in terms of customer base, but also the number of employees and contractors who are working with them. And then we have organizations who play the integrator role. So they're either delivering services on behalf of organizations or they're providing that sort of infrastructure piping of exchanging technology and yeah, integration components. And then we've got academics as well. We've got an academic community. So speaking into some of the, I guess, the social license, the ethical nature, privacy, those sort of components as well. So the organization itself is a fascinating mix of stakeholders who have self-identified. They're all saying we've got a role to play in this. And the work of the organization is helping to collaborate between those organizations to come up with some of those fundamental principles of what does this trust look like and how can we stimulate it? How can we actually get things moving so that we've got some action and some, some real life examples of digital identity in action in New Zealand? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Very, as you said earlier, it's a multidisciplinary collaboration of organizations and people. Excellent. And I know that there's something that is part of the work you are doing, the organization is doing, is the Digital Identity Trust Framework from New Zealand. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So one of our founding members of Digital Identity back two years ago was our Department of Internal Affairs. So they're the organization who currently looks after and an identity system, which is like a portal, a gateway to government, but they're also responsible for the birth register and passports and those sort of things. So they've got a strong synergy in terms of the authentication and proof. Now, at the same time that Digital Identity New Zealand started, there was a team within that department who were commissioned with exploring what a digital identity trust framework might look like in New Zealand. So they're called the Digital Identity Transition Program, and their role over the last two years has been to gather evidence and to provide advice to government on what government's role should be in a, in a digital identity ecosystem. So the digital identity trust framework 
is the mechanism that that group has recommended to government to be implemented. So what that looks like from a legislative perspective, it's really the start of the journey, if you like. The trust framework itself has been approved by our cabinet. So it is formal government policy now, although we do have an election coming up. So who knows? But basically what that signals is that next year into the New Zealand Parliament, they will introduce a digital identity bill, a piece of legislation, which will enable this trust framework. Now, the framework is about primarily standards and accreditation of entities. So it's providing a mechanism for that trust to act and operate. So it's like the minimum standards of engagement. If I'm an organisation who's wanting to play a role with a self-sovereign digital ID wallet, or if I'm an organisation who wants to integrate my banking service with, for instance, information from a government department, then the trust framework and the accreditation mechanism associated with it is the means in which that legally becomes enactable, if you like. So short story, the current situation is quite fragmented. We've looked in detail at some things like banking use cases around anti-money laundering. And just the way the regime is written and legislated at the moment, it doesn't actually allow easily for an ecosystem approach to digital identity. So the trust framework is really a an enabling piece of legislation which will help in establishing a legal mechanism where different entities can provide those trust anchors and trust mechanisms in this country. Uh, so, yeah, so it's, uh, so its vision is to harmonize all this, um, what you, you mentioned, uh, fragmentation between the, the services and, the, and this, this trust anchors. And it's, so it's mostly, it's mostly legal. It's a legal framework, mostly. The trust framework is a legal framework, mm -hmm. yes. It has thresholds in terms of those accreditation. It will have thresholds in terms of accreditation, in terms of meeting minimum standards of security and also good governance. And it also will provide insight on things like liability. So if I trust an identity which has been, for instance, some of the more complex use cases is if I establish an identity, for instance, in a mobile wallet in a self-sovereign type situation, and then I use that identity, to, for instance, to open a bank account and subsequently something goes wrong, the identity proofs weren't valid or something has happened along the chain, then who is responsible for that? Is it the bank because they've accepted this digital identity? Is it the provider of the digital identity wallet? Or is it in fact nobody? Have we got a safe harbor type situation where we're saying that everybody is doing their best meeting the minimum standards and if something bad happens, then we have rules around recourse, which may be a safe harbor type rule. So it's establishing those mechanisms and that's where a lot of the complexity yeah, yes. and, the, and the hard work that is still to come has, has got to be done. Yeah. And just for the also for the benefit of the listeners and also actually I don't know those details. What are the main ways of identity for let's say for a, for persons? So there is type of national national identity or bank authentication, things like that? Yeah, this is a fascinating discussion amongst the community, particularly in Digital Identity New Zealand as a member association. So New Zealand is one of those jurisdictions like Australia and like the United Kingdom who don't have a centralized population register which is a natural starting point for a government-issued ID. We don't have that. So what we have are various proxies to that at the moment, rough equivalents that are considered the highest form of perhaps authentication or validation of identity at the moment. 
So that is your passport, which is mm-hmm. biometrically secure and all of those sort of things. That's probably the strongest form. We have a driver's license, which has a photograph on it, but it's not a, it's the biometrics associated with that aren't stored anywhere. So it's just an image. So those two forms of identity really are the cornerstone for establishing anything. Typically, if anybody's asking you for proof of identity, you're going to come back to one of those two. Now, that creates challenges because obviously not everybody needs a passport because not everybody wants to travel, especially at the moment. And more and more frequently, not everybody needs a driver's license. Or in fact, somebody may have had a driver's license, but then is incapacitated and so no longer can drive. Mm. and so no longer holds a license. So we've got gaps in that regard. One of the other fascinating arguments and discussions, not arguments, but discussions which has been coming up is with our Indigenous Māori population in New Zealand. So like a lot of Indigenous populations and a lot of colonial situations, there, there have been some historical issues in terms of fairness and justice. There's been issues around, around land and quite a Typical, generally a typical sort of behaviour from colonial powers, riding a little bit roughshod over local population. So with that comes a questioning of the government's role. And what is a fascinating aspect in New Zealand with the Māori population, just as I said right at the beginning, that introduction at the beginning, that's called a pipiha. That's a very short version of who I am. Māori talk about uh, something which is called whakapapa, which is your genealogy or your family line. And interesting, in the Māori tradition, it's traced back through both parent lines. It's not matriarchal, it's not patriarchal, it's both. And so you have a really rich oral, primarily oral tradition of whakapapa, where individuals can trace back their lineage through their tribal and their family connections through generations and generations. And so that, when you look at it, that's actually an incredibly reliable form of proving who somebody is. And so we member organisations now who are asking the question. Now, government assumes that government is the one that validates identity. So we've got people asking the question, well, who gets to say who I am? And interestingly, in the New Zealand context, government is listening to that. So the starting point in the trust framework isn't the government is the only trust anchor or the government issued credentials are the only ones that can be validated. There is a growing awareness and a a questioning of how we can integrate other forms of attestation, be they traditional tribal, communal, or even aspects of social validation as well, which may come into that. Uh, So not necessarily assuming that it's always going to be a government-issued credential, which is the starting point of your identity journey. That's quite a fascinating development here, and it's something which we've been observing and fostering the discussion on over the last 18 months in particular. And it's something we're not seeing a lot of around the world either. Oh, yeah, it does. A very, very interesting case, definitely. And you mentioned, for instance, the passport, the driving license, as well as IDs. But there are also some digital IDs that are widely used, even also from the commercial side. So there are, let's say, web shops are using some identity that is from New Zealand or... Yes, there are. I mean, there's reasonably widespread use of things like federated identity. You know, in New Zealand, we've got login with Google and Facebook, just like everyone else in the world does. So those sort of aspects of identity, which are on the obviously on the lower end of the of the trust spectrum, if you like, you're not looking for digital proof or biometric proof necessarily in those situations. Yeah, there's a wide variety of what is being used. 
the government itself has a, a digital identity service that's called RealMe. That has been one of the key points that the digital identity transition program has been talking about because that's a government-sponsored, a government-owned initiative. And, you know, theoretically, there's a debate about whether you just keep that one system or whether you open it up effectively for competition. And the way the trust framework has emerged and has been written, effectively opening up the ecosystem in New Zealand. So that realme system that the government owns, they're still going to invest in, but it's not going to be the only identity system which is available. One of the keys to that then becomes actually interoperability between different systems as well. So there's a recognition that choice is important from a customer perspective for their ability to use a mechanism that they know and trust and are comfortable with. But then the onus then becomes on the integrators and the organisations who hold the data to actually make it available in an interoperable fashion, so not building silos. That's probably one of the key challenges that we've got in terms of opening up the ecosystem here. Yes, and you, you mentioned that about the digital entity trust framework. One of the next big steps is, uh, is going to be a, a bill next year, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, yes. What would what, what say there are already some the big achievement or, or some of the biggest achievements? I think it's recognition of the emerging nature of digital identity systems. So the trust framework has been written to be technology agnostic, if you like. It's designed to not rely on any particular form of technology, for, you know, and I'm talking from the ultra self-sovereign blockchain yes. from to the centralized ubiquitous, we're going to command and control everything spectrum. There's a recognition in the trust framework that both of those technologies exist and a whole lot in the middle as well. You know, we talk about distributed ledger and often conflate it with blockchain, but that's not true at all. There's a lot of distributed ledger technology out there, which is not blockchain. So yeah, the framework is being written in such a way that, that we're not saying that this is the technology, everybody can build to this technology. It's more talking about the principles of security and trust and interoperability, and then whatever standards are necessary to enable that to work. So the standards are more about interoperability than anything else. It's the ability to exchange the information in a way that both the recipient and the deliverer are aware of what that looks like. So the trust framework itself, as I referred to earlier, it does, it will work in a concept where you've got somebody who is managing their own identity in whatever form, be that a, a mobile digital wallet um, that's not connected to any centralized database, and for them to be able to consent their credentials to be shared. It's designed for that scenario. It's designed for a data sharing scenario where you might have one organization relying on data from another organization and a mechanism to exchange that, exchange those proofs. So from that sense, certainly it's looking like it will be an enduring framework Um, mm -hmm. not something which is going to be out of date in a year's time. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's very, very reasonable. Uh, keep it open, open to technologies, because many of these technologies you mentioned are evolving. Is There are not, uh, there's, for instance, for self-sovereign identity, there is not a solution right now. So there are, <laughs> there are several potential solutions. So and Yes. Exactly. So it's, it's, it's a good thing that the framework uh, is, is, is pretty open. As you mentioned, interoperability is super important. So definitely sounds great and wish that this is going to evolve in the way you are planning in the, in the coming years when this is, uh, this is in, mm -hmm. the, in the hands of people and you know, available for the organizations as well. 
So I don't know if you could foresee some interesting use cases uh, that can be also particularly interesting in New Zealand. In New Zealand, well, we have the one I referred to earlier where, where we may have an identity in which the trust anchor for that identity is a tribal authority or a, or a family in iwi in the New Zealand context. So an identity which is established on the basis of something which isn't issued by the government. And for that to have equal weight as a government-issued credential, I think that's a fascinating use case, particularly when we come into international interoperability, how that's recognised. So, And it's certainly something that we've got a number of member organisations who are actively working on that. So that's something, and again, something I think we recognise as being a little bit different. And a number of our members have had conversations with Indigenous communities around the world around what this might look like in different jurisdictions as well. Yeah, it's definitely fascinating and really looking forward to seeing in the next year when this is with this use case is crystallized. It might be super interesting to know the results and how people are really benefiting from that. Cool. Andrew, could you now give us a tip, a practical advice for anybody how we can protect our digital identity? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, what I can do is go right back to my opening that pepiha. So it's really fascinating. And you did it as well. When you heard that, you paused after I said what I said, took it in a little bit, and then realized when I explained what it was, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's actually really, that's quite special. Now, that happens all the time in a New Zealand context. If that exchange is going on, that pepiha is going on, that very traditional grounding of this is who I am and me sharing who I am, that is given with respect and it's given with a degree of trust around that. Now, it's also received in the same fashion. It's very rare that you will get a, an audience or, or somebody in an audience disrespecting that exchange of information and that's almost sacred ritual, if you like, of establishing who I am and telling you, sharing that information with you. So it is given with respect and it's accepted with dignity and respect. What we talk about here is another, I'll use another Māori word, it's taonga, which means a precious gift. It's a treasured thing. It's either a historical artifact, but it could be a more ethereal thing. Te reo Māori, the Māori language, is recognised as a taonga, as a treasure. And what we talk about is identity is taonga. Identity is a treasure. It's something precious. It's something which is deserving of dignity, respect and care. And framing it in that way, taking away those sort of ultra-commercial, you know, identity as oil and all of those sort yeah. of That sort of language which is used, if we reframe identity as being something which is very personal, um, but it's worthy of that care, that dignity and respect, it actually changes the attitude of all parties who are involved. It changes the attitude of me as a user and in inputting my information. What am I doing with this? What am I giving up? by giving up my information here? Is it appropriate for me to do that? Am I taking care of my identity? And by extension, my family around me. And then for organizations, it's the same thing. How am I caring and respecting for this precious information which is being entrusted to me as a guardian? Mm -hmm. Am I exploiting that? Or am I actually giving the person who is giving that to me, the agency, the trust, consenting how that data is used? Am I treating it with that dignity and respect? So to me, that reframing of what identity is and talking about the fact that identity is taonga, identity is a precious gift. It actually helps us do a better job when we're making those decisions about what happens in our systems and with the data that we have. 
Mm, yeah, excellent. Great tip, great reflection, definitely. Uh, make the think, and I, I'll definitely remember this. Uh, and thanks for the Maori lessons. <laughs> um, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks a lot, Andrew, for this conversation. It was very fascinating, and definitely we'd like to hear, for anybody who is listening to this, how people would like to get in touch with you or learn more about the work that the organization is doing. Absolutely. Well, we try and keep everything up to date in terms of uh, websites. That's probably the best place to start. That is digitalidentity.nz or NZ, depending on which part of the world you're from. So it's reasonably easy to find. I myself uh, am, am an active LinkedIn user, so happy to connect with anyone who's interested in finding out more. We do publish research. We have our own webinars as well. So yeah, there's a fair number of ways that people can interact and share in the in the journey with us. Excellent. Again, Andrew, it was a pleasure talking with you and all the best. You too. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk About Digital Identity, produced by UbiSecure. Stay up to date with episode at ubisecure.com slash podcast or join us on Twitter at ubisecure and use the hashtag LTADI. Until next time, 